If you've been with us over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through God's word to us in 2 Samuel. If you haven't been here these past few weeks, we're going to walk a little bit through that and I'll introduce myself for you as well. My name's Lachlan. I'm one of the pastors here. love to get to know you more after the service tonight. But we've been working our way through 2 Samuel. This is our practice here, just taking parts of the Bible and working bit by bit through them. And we've met David. He's the main character besides God of this part of God's word. David is God's anointed king over Israel. We've watched David through the early chapters of 2 Samuel ascend the throne. It hasn't been an easy journey, has it? If you think back to the first week, there were those long, hard years when he was opposed by Saul. Saul was the previous king of Israel, and multiple times Saul was chasing after David, doing all that he could to try to kill David. But time after time, Saul missed the opportunity, and David, though he had opportunities to strike back against Saul, he didn't take them. He remained righteous in all his actions. And then we saw after Saul's death, the opposition didn't stop there. One of Saul's sons named Ishbosheth, he had a go at opposing David. Uh, he took over most of Israel. David just ruled over one little tribe in the south. And that led to a civil war that lasted for seven and a half years. Then finally, chapter 5 of 2 Samuel records the time when David became the undisputed king over Israel. So at this point, it's about 1000 BC. Because you realize, don't you, we're talking about real history and real people that lived and died and bled and real place over there in Israel, a thousand BC. So David's become king and he needs to set up his capital city. So in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, he goes into Jerusalem, takes over the Jebusites who had been living there and sets up this city as his capital. And then in chapter 6, a couple of weeks ago, we saw him bring the ark of God into Jerusalem, recognizing that his rule was under God's rule. That although he was in the city, he needed God to be there because God was really the king of Israel. And then we got to chapter 7 last week, really the high point of this book of Samuel. David's there chilling out in his palace, recognizing that his pad is a bit nicer than God's tent out in the courtyard. And so he wants to try to make God settle down with him in Jerusalem. But God answers back saying, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God makes these huge promises to David of grace upon grace upon grace. God promises David, you remember, that a descendant of David would always sit upon the throne as king over God's people. And God promises that under that descendant, there would be rest on every side. No more war, just peace forever. Now this week, as the history continues... What we're going to see in God's word is a, a snapshot of what David's kingdom was like. What was it actually like to live as a citizen under David as king? Why has he gone down in history as such a great king? What we'll see is two things about David. He was a king of remarkable justice and a king of remarkable kindness. We'll start with his justice. So read with me in 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. Do keep your Bibles open there. Make sure that what I'm saying, I'm not just making up, but pointing you to what's in the Scriptures. 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel. We're going to take a quick aside here just to highlight that word, all, about David reigning over all Israel. This isn't particularly related to the main point of tonight, but it's worth pausing because chapter 8, prior to this point, has detailed a whole bunch of military victories that David won. Uh, 
it's not just David winning the victory. Verse 6 and 14 have made clear, repeated refrain, that the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So you've got God giving David all these different military victories. But what's significant is when you look at the map of Israel, should come up on screen there. I don't know how clearly you can see those names there. Uh, when you look at the different nations that David defeats in this chapter, something sticks out. So you've got to remember that God had promised to Abraham many years before David a particular portion of land that his descendants would have as their land, as their inheritance. And God had described very specifically the boundaries of that land. But prior to David, Israel hadn't received it all. They were just living in a small portion, so the purple bit in the middle of the map there, that's the extent of Israel's kingdom under Saul. The green bit around it are the parts that David conquered. So throughout chapter 8, we read of David taking the Philistines out on the coastline, that little yellow patch there. So all the way to the west, he took it to the coastline. Uh, Verse 2, he takes out the Moabites. You see them towards the east, just next to the Dead Sea down the bottom of the map there. He takes them out. In verse 3, he heads up north, all the way up to the Euphrates River. So you can't quite see, but where the kind of outer boundary, that's the Euphrates River running along there below Beth Eden. David takes out the enemies up to the north. Uh, And verse 5, it's time for the Arameans of Damascus. Now again, Aram isn't marked on there, but see those red lines? We lost it all. Oh, well. Uh, Where those two red lines were converging, the techies will fix that all up. Uh, That was Damascus. That was the city of Damascus. David took that one out as well. So we get the summary statement there in verse 12. Uh, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the spoil of Hadadiz, the son of Rehob, king of Zobar. David was collecting all the, all the kind of gold and silver from all of these nations. David had had this massive military conquest and finally under his rule, all Israel covers the whole region that God had promised. They've been waiting a long time, but God has kept his promise. And at this point, this is the high point of Israel as a nation. This is when their land is the largest that it will be. They've finally reached that point where all Israel is the land that God had promised. God's people here, in God's place, under God's rule, exercised through God's king, this is the pattern of God's kingdom. Back to verse 15, because it goes on. So David reigned over all Israel, corrupt, looking out for his own interests, serving himself. That's not what it says, is it? It's what we might expect. That's how we feel about leaders. That's what we expect leaders to be like. But what verse 15 actually says, David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Isn't that a remarkable sentence? David wasn't just administering justice to some people. He wasn't just looking out for his mates. He wasn't just looking out for the ones that liked him. His rule brought prosperity and peace for all his citizens. In that whole land of Israel, finally, as much as God had promised, there was a king who was doing what was just and right for all the people. And you read verse 16 to 18 with all those hard names that Ash did so well with. uh, The point of that list is that David's kingdom was well-ordered and transparent. Transparency is key for a government without corruption. And that list works through the military, the press, the the religion, the budget. Uh, All of those areas were being looked after 
within David's kingdom, and everyone knew who was looking after them. So we get a small snapshot here in 2 Samuel 8, just that one verse of verse 15 of what it looked like for David to be king. But to kind of build that out a little bit, to see with some more detail what that might have been like, I want you to turn to Psalm 101. Flick back in your Bible. Let's hear those flicking pages. I'll see the, see the scrolling screen. Psalm 101. And as you hear this psalm, I want you to be thinking about what it would feel like to live under a king like the one described in this psalm. This is a psalm written by David, expressing what he was like as king. Have a think about what this would feel like to have this kind of king. David says, I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I will live with a heart of integrity in my house. I will not set anything worthless before my eyes. I hate the practice of transgression. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. My eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. The one who follows the way of integrity may serve me. No one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace. No one who tells lies will remain in my presence. Every morning, I will destroy all the wicked of the land, eliminating all evildoers from the Lord's city. That sounds like a pretty good place to live, right? It's a place where you'd be in safety, a place where you'd be comfortable, a place that would be nice. Slander, arrogance, deceit, lies, wickedness, evil, all of those are punished swiftly and completely. Faithfulness and integrity, they're rewarded in this kingdom. And that's what God's kingdom looks like. This is the pattern of God's kingdom, God's people living in God's place under God's good and just rule, exercised through his king. David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. So we've seen David's justice, but let's also see David's remarkable kindness. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone remaining from Saul's family I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? Now, as you hear David's question there, remember who Saul was. Saul was that previous king who hated David, who tried to kill him. It had taken decades for David to become the undisputed king. And at that point, the expected course of action would be for David to chase down all of Saul's family, all of those potential rival claimants to the throne, and to kill them. That's what we see in all the kind of historical fantasy movies. That's what the reality was like. You didn't want a descendant years later coming up and saying, no, no, I'm the one who should be king. So we expect David to chase out and destroy all of these descendants. But God's king responds differently. David looks to show kindness. He goes out of his way. He intentionally seeks out a descendant of Saul so that he might show this kindness. As he's doing that, he he finds out that there is indeed a son of Jonathan who is still alive. His name's Mephibosheth. 
There's great names in this book, isn't there? Those of you who might have kids one day, you know, some ideas here. Mephibosheth, Mephi. Um, Mephibosheth, he's had a rough time in life so far, little Mephi. Uh, you can read about it back in chapter 4. He was kind of introduced briefly in a passing line. Uh, Mephibosheth was five, five years old, when Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle. Uh, when the report of that came back to the town where he was living, the woman who was looking after him, his nurse... She was scared because when the battle was won, you know, you think the enemies are going to come and take over the towns around. So she's terrified and she picks up Mephibosheth, goes to run out of the city, but she's in such a hurry, such a haste that she drops him. And five-year-old Mephibosheth falls to the ground, lands really heavily, and we read that he lost the use of both his legs, becomes paralyzed beneath his waist. Uh, as we hear the reminder of that injury in 2 Samuel 9, we start to get a little worried as well. Because I'm not sure if you've seen this as you've been reading through 2 Samuel along with us. It hasn't come up in the sermons. It hasn't come up in Connect Group. But there's a little passing line again in 2 Samuel 5 that seems to suggest David despised those who were lame and blind. Seems to suggest that David's not going to respond well to someone who is paralyzed below the waist. So try to imagine what Mephibosheth is feeling at this point. He's been summoned to see David, the new king over Israel, Uh, he hasn't been able to walk for most of his living memory. He he barely knew his dad. Life can't have been that great for Mephibosheth. Thanks to advances in medical technology today, you know, we've got to recognize that life today for paraplegics, you can attain a fairly high level of functionality. It's wonderful to see. But back in 1000 BC, there was none of that. Mephibosheth, he couldn't work. He couldn't fend for himself. He would have been completely at the mercy of the people around him. And by all accounts that we have, people weren't too nice to the lame back in 1000 BC. Mephibosheth's life has been rough. And he gets called up to see this new king, the one his family has been fighting against for years. I reckon he'd be pretty scared. What's going to happen here? I can't fight back. If he attacks me, I've got nothing. I've got no hope. What's going to happen? And so David says to him there in 9 verse 6, Don't be afraid. David recognizes the fear that would have been there and says, don't be afraid. Verse 7, as you read this, feel Mephibosheth's joy, what it would have been like to hear these words. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Now that is remarkable kindness. David takes a hit in his personal revenue. All of those fields of Saul, they would have passed on to him when he became king. And he says, no, no, you have all of that. You have all of that farmland, all the animals that are on there. That would have been a substantial amount of farmland from this previous king. And then David invites this grandson of his former enemy to eat meals with him. This is particularly a personal favor of the king. It's an invitation into the king's life. In essence, David almost adopts Mephibosheth into his own family, like a son. You see the way it's described in verse 11. Mephibosheth ate at David's table, just like one of the king's sons. Now, it wasn't a full adoption. It doesn't seem like Mephibosheth got inheritance from David's family. But it is an enduring kindness. It's not just some one-off act. It lasts for a lifetime. And it's a personal kindness. 
It's not some distant act of, here's some money, now get out of my life, I don't want to see you again. It's personal. It's enduring. It's amazing kindness from a king. Mephibosheth's response is fitting in verse 8. He bowed down and said, What is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? He recognizes that he's done nothing, absolutely nothing, to deserve this kindness from God's king. And not only has he done nothing in the past, he recognizes that into the future he he can do nothing to repay this kindness from God's king. He's, He's lame in both feet. He can't fight. He can't work. He has nothing to offer in return for David's kindness. Now, why has David done this? Why did God's king extend such remarkable kindness? Well, the story gives us two reasons there in the passage. At first, it says it was because he was showing kindness because of Jonathan. So Jonathan was Mephibosheth's father. The motive is repeated there twice in the story, verse 1 and again in verse 7. So what's going on here? Why? Because of Jonathan. Well, David here is a man who keeps his word. If you flick back to 1 Samuel chapter 20 and read verse 14 to 15. So the context here in 1 Samuel 20 is that David is about to flee from Saul. This is the first time that he really gets confirmed that Saul is out to kill him. Jonathan is the one who has passed on that message. Although Jonathan is Saul's son, he recognizes that David is the one who under God will be king of Israel. Jonathan trusts God and so loves David more than he loves his own family. And Jonathan has warned David to flee. And in 1 Samuel 20, he's sending him off. And so Jonathan says to David in verse 14, If I continue to live, treat me with the Lord's faithful love. Now that's the exact same word translated as kindness in 2 Samuel 9. It's translated sometimes in the Bible as faithful love, sometimes as steadfast love, sometimes as kindness. Jonathan is asking David to treat him with the Lord's faithful love, the Lord's kindness. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your faithful love from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. David agrees to that plan. He makes a covenant, a binding oath with Jonathan that he will show him that kindness of God. So now in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David is keeping his word. And isn't that another great example of a king of justice and righteousness? A king who is faithful to his promises, unlike most politicians of our day who make their promises at election time and don't follow through on them. This is a great king. But alongside that motivation for his kindness, I think there's a second that I think is a deeper reason for his kindness. It's a reason which gives shape to the extent of the kindness offered to Mephibosheth, that enduring and personal kindness. So notice in verse 3, the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? See, God's king is showing not just his own kindness, but God's kindness. And what was God's kindness? Well, we saw back in chapter 7 last week, all of the kindness of what God had done and would do for David. Remember, God had taken David from being that young shepherd boy following along the sheep from an insignificant family, and God had raised him up to be the exalted king over all Israel. 
He's treated David like his son. He's promised to establish David's dynasty. He's promised to always be a father to David's reigning descendant, never removing his faithful love. That was the language of chapter 7. Again, that same word that we find here. God would never remove his faithful love from David's descendant. And do you remember David's reaction when he heard that back in chapter 7? Who am I? Who am I, Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? David was blown away by this kindness and having experienced that mind-blowing kindness from God, now he's ready to extend that same kind of mind-blowing kindness to others. To people who could not pay him back, just like he could not pay God back. To people who seemed unlikely recipients of kindness, just like he was an unlikely recipient of God's kindness. See, God's king shows God's kindness. Now, the kindness doesn't stop with Mephibosheth. As we go on into chapter 10, we get a second story of God's kindness. But this one has a very different ending. Read with me from verse 1 to 4 of 2 Samuel 10. Sometime later, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun became king in his place. Then David said, I'll show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent his emissaries to console Hanun concerning his father. Now, so far, this story sounds good, right? God's king is showing more kindness. He really is a lovely man. However, verse 2 continues, when they arrived in the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite leaders said to Hanun, their lord, Just because David has sent men with condolences for you, do you really believe he's showing respect for your father? Instead, hasn't David sent his emissaries in order to scout out the city, spy on it, and demolish it? So Hanun took David's emissaries, shaved off half their beards, cut their clothes in half at the hips, and sent them away. That's a very different response than Mephibosheth to David's kindness. In case you missed how badly they treated David's messengers, uh, men in these days loved their beards. A man's beard represented his dignity. Uh, You only shaved it off when you were seriously grieving. See, I like being clean-shaven, but you should see up on screen, hipsters love their beards. (laughs) I I quite like being clean-shaven, but for a hipster, your beard is your masculinity. To shave off this guy's beard, he's going to be feeling terrible. So what you need to picture as you picture these men in 2 Samuel 10, picture this guy with half his beard shaved off and then worse than that, no pants on because that's what the Ammonites did. They cut off David's messenger's tunics below the waist. So picture a group of these guys, half their beard shaved off, no pants on, running away from a foreign city. That is shame. That is humiliating. That is a terrible response to an offer of kindness. And so I hope you can see the lesson that's here for us in these two chapters. Kindness needs to be responded to. David extended his kindness to Mephibosheth, who humbly and gratefully accepted it. David extended his kindness to Hanun, who despised it and threw it back in his face. How did David respond to the Ammonites? Well, the rest of chapter 10 shows that he took the battle to them. 
He smashed them, defeated them. Mephibosheth, on the other hand, got to enjoy unlimited hospitality in David's house. How you respond to kindness matters. So what does all this have to do with us? How does it relate to that question that we started with? What does the Bible have to say to a world where so many societies suffer under corrupt leadership? I hope you can see that 2 Samuel is showing us a picture of a good and kind king. God's king rules with justice for all his people, extending God's kindness to the outcast and to enemies. See, leadership in itself is not something we have to fight against. I think that can often be our tendency and our temptation. If, if leaders are just going to be looking out for themselves and not seeking the good of others, well, let's not trust any leaders. Let's just try to lead myself. I know that I'm looking out for my own good, so at least if I follow myself, then I'll be okay. But leadership is not in itself an evil. God's word is showing us that there can be a good kind of king. In saying that, human leadership will always be flawed. So if you know where the story of Samuel is going, you're thinking at this point, yeah, David's about to stuff up, isn't he? As you come back next week, you will see David's corruption. You'll, you'll hear that he falls and he falls hard. He commits adultery, murder, he lies. And once David has fallen, the kingdom of Israel just spirals worse and worse. King after king, evil king after evil king, corruption enters in to this kingdom of Israel. But in the midst of that, this glorious time of David's kingdom becomes the pattern, excuse my voice there, the pattern, that's a bit better, the pattern that sets the hope for Israel through those times of evil kings. This portion of his reign where David is just and kind, well, the people of Israel start to long for another king who will be like that. They long for the kingdom to be renewed under this descendant of David that God had promised. So we could go to lots of different places in the Old Testament prophets, but I've just picked two for you. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will raise up a righteous branch of David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. That language that had described the goodness of David's reign is picked up to describe the hope of another king who would come, a descendant of David. Isaiah 32 verse 1. Indeed, a king will reign righteously and rulers will rule justly. Then justice will inhabit the wilderness and righteousness will dwell in the orchard. In the midst of a corrupt society, Israel started looking forward to that renewal of justice and righteousness because they trusted God's promise to David would be fulfilled. Though David had turned sour, God would keep his promise. He would raise up this descendant of David who would rule forever and whose kingdom would be full of justice, righteousness and kindness. And so we wait with Israel for that time of hope and we get to Matthew 12, verse 18 to 21, where these words are said about Jesus, who was a descendant of David. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim 
justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Doesn't that sound like the kind of ruler that we need? Jesus is the promised son of David who reigns with perfect justice and righteousness for all of his people. Though the world is currently still full of corruption and injustice and oppression, there is coming a day when Jesus will return as the judge and when he will carry out justice with absolutely no favoritism. No one will be able to bribe him. No one will be able to sweet-talk him out of justice. He's certainly not going to be interested in sexual favours. Rather, Jesus will return bringing complete justice and ushering in a new world where righteousness will dwell in the language of 2 Peter. A world that really will be peaceful and safe and secure with no more fear. That is a message of hope to bring to our corrupt world. Jesus is a king of justice and righteousness. Long for his return. Become a citizen of his kingdom. At the same time as we hold out that hope, I wonder if you see the problem for us. You might have felt it when we read Psalm 101 earlier. See, if Jesus was to treat me with justice, well, I'm corrupt. As I've read that language of Psalm 101, I certainly felt it. The king's justice that was expressed there, I mean, I have been haughty and arrogant. Would I have a place in his kingdom? I've acted deceitfully. Would I have a place in this king's kingdom? I've told lies. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus was to treat me with justice, I'm stuffed. I would not find a place in his kingdom. I'd be destroyed as an enemy of his justice. It's only when we come to that place of humility, recognizing our own failure to act with justice and righteousness, then can we start to appreciate the kindness of God's King Jesus. So Jesus came as one who healed the lame. He came as one who offered his one-time enemies, who were rebelling against him, who were acting in injustice and deceit. Jesus came and offered them a place in his household, free of charge, full forgiveness, with no hope of repayment. Ephesians 1, that great chapter that outlines God's kindness in its entirety, it describes in verse 3, Hear these words. God predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Uh, That verse is full of language of kindness, favor, glorious grace. The kindness expressed there, it's more remarkable than the kindness David extended to Mephibosheth. In Christ, we can truly be adopted into God's family. Though we deserve under his justice to be cast out, we can gain the inheritance of his glory. We can enjoy life forever with him, eating always from his table, never again hungry. Not because of anything that we have done, 
but simply because in his kindness, Jesus has made a way for rebels like us to lay down our weapons and come home. Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve. He's taken the justice on himself so that we might have a place in his kingdom. But like in 2 Samuel, we do have a choice of how we respond to that kindness of God's king. Will you be like Mephibosheth and humbly accept God's kindness? Or will you be like Hanun and assume that Jesus is just trying to trick you? See, we live in a world full of these corrupt and self-seeking leaders, and I think we project that onto God at times. We think that if God wants to rule us, he must just be self-seeking as well. He's just out for his own good. He can't actually care about me. And some of his laws seem to suggest that. I don't like some of his laws. They seem like they're just going to block my fun. We think that God's rule is corrupt. But that is not true. God's king is just and righteous. Like David extending his kindness to the Ammonites, so God is extending his kindness to you. And his rule is beneficial for you. So please don't reject his kindness. And please don't ridicule and shame the messengers of God's kindness to you. Have you got friends that have been telling you about Jesus' kindness? Don't mock them. Don't ridicule them. Be humble and accept Jesus' extravagant kindness to you. Friends, in the midst of our corrupt world, we who have put our hope in Jesus have such a solid hope, don't we? Jesus is God's king of justice and righteousness and kindness. And he will return to establish the perfect kingdom of which David's kingdom was just the shadow, just the pattern. So we need to long for Jesus' return. I hope you do long for Jesus' return. As you see those images at the start, as you hear stories from across the world of the terrible conditions in which people live, long for Jesus' return when justice will come in in full. And let's be people who are the messengers of God's kindness, holding out that hope to others, telling them of what God has to offer as the solution to the corruption of this world. At the same time, as we long for Jesus' return, as we strive to be messengers of his kindness, I have to say one final word about the nature of our lives as we wait for his return. What does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom while we wait for Jesus' return? See, God's king is just and righteous and kind because that's what God is like. And it's what he expects of the citizens of his kingdom as well. When David received God's kindness, he didn't let it stop there with him. He intentionally, diligently sought opportunities to extend that kindness to others. His mind was blown by how kind God had been to him. He, he couldn't contain that. He now had a security that allowed him to extend that kindness to others. And so too should we. And that is the appropriate response to the amazing kindness of God to us. And so I want to ask you as you're here tonight, what are you doing with your life? What ambitions do you have? What passions do you have for change in this broken world? We're not going to be ultimately able to fix the world. That's true. We're waiting for Jesus' return when he will fix it entirely. And yet as we wait, we are to be people who live out God's justice. 
who seek to see God's justice happen across this globe. We're to be people who extend God's kindness to others. That's what drove evangelical Christians like William Wilberforce to devote his life to see slavery abolished throughout the British Empire. He was a man who knew God's kindness to him. He was a man who knew God's justice. So as he saw this social evil, he couldn't let it go on. While he proclaimed the message of Jesus' return, while he proclaimed that Jesus is the only hope we have for eternity, he gave his life to abolishing slavery, to extending God's justice even now. It's the same thing that drives Christians to work for groups like International Justice Mission, groups that see corruption brought to account in nations where the legislative system is far from perfect. That's a good use of a law degree. It's what drives Christians today to work hard to see the sex industry, which is so full of corruption and slavery and oppression, and Christians work hard to bring that to an end. It's why Christians adopt children and start orphanages and protest against domestic violence and care for the elderly and look out for their neighbours and run soup kitchens. Many of you are already extending kindness to people around you. You're opening up your home, you're cooking meals for people when they're in need, you're volunteering in different things. Keep that up. In the words of Paul in Thessalonians, excel still more. But I do want to challenge those of you who are still young, who are still working out what to give your life to. Please, don't just become an engineer or a pharmacist or a computer tech or a teacher and strive for the New Zealand dream of a comfortable life with a couple of kids in the home that you own and you've got the batch up north where you go three times a year for holiday. Don't let that be the mark of your life. Don't let that be your driving ambition. We have received such kindness from God. Adoption into his family, a solid hope for all eternity. We have news of that kindness to bring to others as we live out that kindness in our lives. A kindness that is enduring, not short term. A kindness that is personal, not distant. And isn't it such a privilege to be able to share God's kindness with others. It was such a privilege to be able to bring justice on earth as we wait for the full justice to come with Jesus' return. So before I close up in some prayer, I want to give you a moment to just silently reflect on life and where it's up to at the moment for you. I want to give you a moment to maybe think, is there someone in life, even this week, that I can extend kindness to? How can you be like David, extending God's kindness to those around you? Take a minute, think, pray, maybe write down a resolution that comes to mind.
I don't know if anything immediately jumped to mind for you. But that's a good question to keep reflecting on. As you work through life, what am I going to give life to? What what am I going to get passionate about? A great thing to chat about over dinner tonight and to start talking with one another, maybe working together for something, building a team that can extend God's kindness to this city, to this world. As you bear the message of hope that Jesus is the King who will bring full justice and righteousness. So let me close by praying to God who has established his king. Father, thank you that your rule is a rule of justice and kindness. We're sorry for the times we doubt your kindness and assume that you're out to get us, that you're like the corrupt leaders of our world, seeking your own good rather than good of your people. We're sorry for doubting you in that way. Thank you so much that you've adopted us into your family. Gosh, that is amazing love that you've lavished on us, that we should be called your children. We don't deserve that at all. We can't offer anything in return to you, God. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you that Jesus will come with justice because the world around us grieves us, Father, as we see those who are suffering oppression. We wish there was more that we could do. Thank you that you will bring justice one day. And please, as we wait, show us the opportunities around us day by day to show your kindness to others. Help us to see those opportunities and to take them. May may we be known as a people of remarkable kindness. And may we be messengers of your kindness who take the news of Jesus to others as well. So please save, Father, more and more people. Bring them into the kingdom of your son, Jesus, that they might share with us that solid hope of his return. It's for Jesus' glory and our joy that we pray. Amen.